Good evening, everyone. Welcome. That's where it's actually on. I didn't know it was on. First of all, before we get started, I just want to acknowledge the, uh, the uh, tremendous amount of work and arrangement that uh, went into this uh, on, behalf, on Rabbi Foxbrunner's part. Uh, there are many moving parts to Rabbi Fox's visit to Atlanta, not only tonight's forum, and Rabbi Foxbrunner took it upon himself to, uh, to make that happen. And Yasha Ka, thank you for reminding us. <clears throat> we want to thank uh, all of our partners, all of the Toko Hills institutions, uh, the shoals and the, uh, and the houses of learning, so to speak, are taking place and sponsoring this, this forum tonight. That's Netzach Yisrael, and New Toko Shul, and Ner HaMizrach, Or HaTorah, Chabad, YOY, Tamima, Torah Day School of Atlanta, TDSA, and AJA all came together to make this night possible, Yosha Koach, and their leaders and Rabbanim are here. Welcome, and uh, thank you all for being partners in this very, very important undertaking. We also want to recognize Chai Lifeline, uh, the local chapter, so to speak, of Chai Lifeline, by Nahi Friedman, uh, also who are uh, important, important partners uh, in, this, uh, in tonight's forum. <clears throat> We're here to hear Rabbi Dr. Fox, and so I'm not going to say a lot of things that need to be said uh, at another time in another appropriate form. But uh, one thing for sure, when, when tragedy and uh, trauma uh, hits a community, uh, our tendency towards uh, orderly uh, and predictable thinking is challenged tremendously. And one thing that we can't stand is unpredictability and uncertainty and insecurity. And we wanna know what to do and how to do and how to think and so on and so forth. We have unlimited questions. Certainly we turn to Hashem and tefillah and, and, and earnest prayer, asking for guidance and for wisdom, for courage to deal with whatever needs to be dealt with. Um, and we also have to turn to experience and to expertise. And that's why we turn to uh, Rabbi Dr. Fox who really is probably unrivaled in the uh, gamut of experience and involvement in various communities around the world um, through, his, uh, through his expertise as a Rav, as a Talmud Chacham, as a psychologist. And uh, I'm sure you've seen all those credentials. That's why you're here. You're not here because you don't believe he has the credentials. You're here because you already know. So I don't need to waste your time with that. I can just tell you that uh, Rabbi Fox is really um, the right person at the right time. And so, um, uh, obviously, nothing is going to change because we had this forum. No one thinks that the world will change in Atlanta, Georgia, because we had an hour discussion with an expert. But it will help us order and organize our thoughts as we continue to grapple with the issues that need to be grappled with and as we continue to be responsible as a community and as parents and as institutions and as educators to do, say, be, train, and so on and so forth the right way to make sure that we can do the best we possibly can um, with our community. So, Rabbi um, Fox, welcome. Thank you very much for your willingness to be here on relatively short notice and to spend all today and all tomorrow um, with individuals 
as well as with uh, institutions. And um, just want to mention, we're going to have, uh, you, you submitted quite a number of questions, and uh, Rabbi Foxbrenner will be presenting those questions towards the end, so please hold your questions, and because of time constraints, we're not going to be able to take questions from the audience tonight, but uh, the questions I assure you that came in were uh, cover the broad range of issues, and so uh, we'll have a chance to have those questions addressed towards the end of the evening. Thank you for being here. Sorry to be here. This is a time of real sadness and a tragedy, especially felt in your community. And I commend the rabbinic leadership. direct contact with Rabbi Feldman and Rabbi Foxbrunner and some others. And I commend them for their caring and their sensitivity and the, the lengths they've gone to to shepherd their kahilos during a very, very challenging time. So I thank them for all the programming and the sensitive words up until tonight. And hopefully tonight's talk will introduce some different levels of understanding of ways that we can cope. I want also to mention that I have met with and spoken with the Siegel family at length today. And I am speaking this evening with their blessing and their consent. And this is a time of very, very definite challenge to them. And their support of my time here today and tomorrow in addressing schools and students and teachers and rabbis and mental health professionals is an exemplary model for all of us to follow when confronting Yisurim, when facing suffering, when grappling with recent loss, that one of the steps, one of the steps that we take on the long path of trying to heal is to reach out and look for ways to support others. And may they find in time comfort and bracha for all that they're doing to help the families and the schools in, in Atlanta. There are two almost parallel sayings, one in the Gomorrah and one in the Midrash. 
that are giving us a forecast of what goes on when we learn of tragic death. And one of those statements is Meis Echad Bina Chabura Tidaeg Kol HaKabura Kulo which we would translate as when one of the group, one of the gang, one of the cohort dies that everyone who knew that person is going to react emotionally. That everyone who had a connection to, who was part of that group of people, is going to have a reaction. And the other similar statement in Chazal is which changes, shifts the intent a little. And we would translate as when a person who we knew about in our group passes away, shall we dance? That rings a bell. Um, but when they, when they, um, kind of like Harry Belafonte. <laughs> I usually don't have musical accompaniment during Sphira, but I guess yesterday was Lad Boomer. But, um, but thank you for adjusting that. It was a hard competition for me. But, but going back uh, to so we would translate that a little differently. And it's almost that our sages are giving us an imperative, it's almost a prescription, that when we've lost someone in our group, that we are supposed to take it to heart. That seems to be the dialectic between people will react and well, people are supposed to react. And I really want to start there that there's the death, the very tragic and the self-inflicted ending of a life, and a Jewish life. And a person who, as I understand, to many was very well liked but regardless of who the person was and how well we knew him or we didn't. But this is a horrible, horrible death. And as our sages tell us, that we're going to react, and in fact we're supposed to react, that when a family suffers, the community suffers, when a human being who may have been an agony or torment that we don't know about, when a person reaches the brink and sees just the abyss before him, 
we have to stop and we have to let this register. Sometimes we react by worrying about our own children, worrying about ourselves. And for some, the reaction doesn't go that far, worrying about, but it's just the broken feeling that often follows tragic loss. The sadness, or the disbelief, or the wishing it hadn't happened. And sometimes we react in our bodies. We feel sick, or we feel weak, drained of energy, we can't sleep, or we just want to sleep. And there are a range of thoughts that follow traumatic loss. And some of us experience those then. And what I've learned today and tonight is, for some, some of those thoughts continue. And some of those images continue to waft through consciousness and haunt us. But there are thought reactions. And there are emotional reactions. And as we said, there can be physical and changes in the way we operate and changes in our level of irritability and feelings of confusion. And for some, even some theological musings of why. And why this person, why this family, or why our community and one thing I will encourage everyone in the room to consider is that we've got to start in the aftermath of tragedy. We've got to start with self-awareness. I know this as a scientist. I know this as a traumatologist. And I know this as a rabbi also, that what we, we all have to do for our own well-being, for our own what I call mental hygiene, is to be self-aware and to acknowledge to ourselves that we do react, as Chazal say, everyone is going to have a reaction. And Chazal have also said that not tuning in and looking at how I'm reacting to tragedy. It's like getting a letter in the mail and refusing to open it up and seeing its contents. So self-awareness is very important. And self-awareness is important because if we look at what goes on inside of us, when we are confronting horror and pain, if we look inside of ourselves and inventory our reactions, we can start organizing our thoughts and organizing our feelings and then try to come up with, with some direction. But the opposite is also very, very true, that if we don't 
inventory. We don't know, we don't look at what we're feeling and what we're thinking and what this led to inside of ourselves. And we tune out to we're really insensitive emotionally and we just move on and shrug and we don't look back and we don't look inside. So th this deadens something in our humanity. This anesthetizes something in our heart and it leads to callousness, it leads to insensitivity. It leads to an obliviousness to what else goes on around us in this world and in this society, in this community. And it also <laughs> promotes in our children, in our families, and in our students, a sense that they're not important and that not much is important. And that's very, very much in opposition to the values that we live by as Jewish people. Life is important. And when someone's hurting, when we're hurting, when we're confused, when we're stunned, when we're scared, when we're having a reaction to trauma, even though it's someone else's trauma. But when we acknowledge that we suffer, when we hear about someone else's suffering, this lights up the heart. This motivates people to be kinder. This motivates people to be more attuned to other people who struggle. Our awareness of how we feel and how we act is our healthy first step to being able to reach out to others and to imbue them, to teach them the value of caring, the value of compassion, the value of community, the value of communication. So it's something that I'm urging people, especially after tragedy, is to take stock of what's going on inside of you. When the Navi says, what that verse means is that when we survive, when we're alive, when someone else is gone, we must reflect, we must look inward. I've been repeating throughout the day today that the Navi tells us that the ideal that God has for us is that we look at our lave ha'evan, our stone heart, and we look for ways to transform it into lave basar, this is the words of the prophet, we look for ways to bring that heart back to life. And sometimes we do that on occasions of joy. Something lights up inside of us, we feel once again. But this is something that we have to do also when we're dealing with something that's sad and painful. We've got to open up the heart 
and let it register that there's a family in pain and there's a community that's reeling and our children are affected and some of us are scared and some of us are worried and we acknowledge that. And something else that I urge people to do as a scientist, as a clinician, but also as a rabbi, is that because so much of the time suicide, that moment of impulse, is a moment of loneliness and whether a person has felt alienated, a person has felt different, a person has felt disconnected or disliked, or whether a person just feels that they are suffering in solitude. But whatever it's about, so much of the time in suicide, there is that pinnacle of feeling all alone. And, and because of that, One of the tasks that we work on in reacting positively in a healing direction when we've learned about someone who reached that state of abject loneliness is to make sure that the people who turn to us are not lonely for us. And this really is a time for families to draw close and for couples to communicate and to do whatever we can to remedy the loneliness that we might promote in other people, maybe without realizing it. There's an old expression in the Old West, and I come from California, which is the West, and we speak about circling your wagon, wagons when you're under attack. Well, there's a circling of the wagons that takes place when families or when classmates are dealing with the aftermath of someone who felt all alone. And that is to try remedying that by making sure that the people around us, they do feel our warmth, they do feel, they do feel our sensitivity, they do feel our caring and our compassion. And what that means is that you take your self-awareness and you turn to someone who cares about you and someone you care about and someone who you trust and someone who listens to you not critically and you take that self-awareness and you share it with them. This is what I'm going through. This is how I'm reacting. This is what I'm feeling. These are my thoughts. This is what's changed inside of me when I heard about the tragedy. It's therapeutic. It's mental hygiene. It's taking that awareness of where this is hitting me and how and entrusting it to someone who cares about me. So whether that's two spouses or whether that's best friends, or whether it's you and the Rebbitson or you and the rabbi. But whoever it is that you can turn to, who cares about you as you care about them, and who can listen to you receptively and supportively and not critically and without judging you, 
and will accept that this is what I'm going through right now. So that discussion, that sharing of feelings, that's the communication that helps me with my pain and recognize that I'm not doing this alone. And the person who I turn to and have that type of healing discussion with, of sharing and opening up what hurts and what angers and what confuses and what saddens and what scares inside me, whatever those reactions are, whether they're thought, feeling, body, behavior, or ruhani, spirit, but whatever my reactions are, when we have someone we can share them with, this is part of the healing, but this also is a remedy for the loneliness. Something we encourage that we as adults do, something that I encourage parents to offer their children, and even teachers in classrooms who can help their students, help their Tommy Dim and Tommy Dose. Just be self-aware and be sensitive to other people's reactions. So this is part of the tikkun, this is part of the partial remedy to tragedy, that where there was horrible loneliness, now there are efforts towards cohesion and towards closeness. But this is also just a part of the gradual recovery. If we don't talk about our reactions, if we don't acknowledge and process them with someone, if we don't give them a voice and put them into words, they don't evaporate, they don't go away. And, and if you're hurt by this, or if you're bothered by this, or if you're angered by this, or you're confused by this, and you said whatever, wherever it's hitting you, if it's not talked about, literally put into words, I can tell you that the neuroscience, which I lecture on, says it wallows in the brain and it concretizes. It becomes a presence inside of your brain. And you can't kick it with time, it doesn't go away. And it does set you up subsequently for mood changes and for sadness and for addictive behavior and for difficulty concentrating and for lack of motivation. And I'm not exaggerating. I'm telling you this is what the brain science is showing us, that unprocessed reactions in the wake of a tragedy, when they're not processed and talked about with someone who cares and who listens, so those reactions will stay with you. And you will find with time that you're beginning to have unexpected emotional changes or changes in interpersonal attitude or even changes in your spiritual functioning. So we're self-aware and we take that self-awareness and we entrust it to someone who listens caringly and supportively. This is part of the process of learning to deal with our reactions. We know what they are, we identify them, and we find someone to talk. 
than over with. Well, we discovered that a young person has taken their life. And when that's happened more than once within a community, there are some predictable reactions. They're predictable reactions that are sort of like a reflex where the mind can go. And it's not malicious. And it's not cynical, but it's one of the directions the mind takes. And the mind sometimes goes into whose fault is it? Who's to blame? And people conjure up all sorts of hypotheses about what caused this. And what I want you to know is that nobody caused this. Spoken with the fact that but I also know thanatology because it's a good part of what I consult on professionally. I understand suicide and death clinically. And it, it's not caused by, it's not the fault of, it's not the failure of. No, we're not talking about a situation where a person's under assault, and because of the pain they can't tolerate, they end their life to hasten their death. We're not talking about that, where we can say it was the aggressor who caused us. We're not talking about that. What we're talking about, someone whose torment was at times unknown and undetected, even by people close to him, and someone who struggles, nobody had an explanation for. We're not talking as far as I'm understanding about someone who was reacting to something that had happened. So we need to get off that idea that we're going to figure out whose fault it was and who's to blame and whose responsibility it was. There's a significant percentage of people who end their lives and we don't find, we don't know of any antecedent, etiological, correlate things in their history or past that explain it. And it makes it frightening. It makes it frightening because we can't always predict when that might go on in a person. There are a couple of things I'm going to teach you in a little bit of time so we at least have open eyes about red flags and things we can be on the lookout for. But let's understand that you have excellent education in your community, and you have very, very devoted shepherds among your rabbinical leadership, and you have a caring family, with well-adjusted, happy children. And you have people who feel supported, who feel cared about, who feel loved, and you just don't want to go in that direction. The most harmful experience beyond the shock of loss is when rumors and misperceptions 
begin to circulate and get back to the family. The damage that's done when people come up with their theory or come up with a distorted version or come up with non-fact and their version or their interpretation. And throughout the world, throughout the Jewish world, whatever the tragedy was, whether it was death from an illness, whether it was death from an accident, whether someone took their life or someone was killed by somebody else, but the tendency to rule when we don't know fact is a very strong impulse, and that's something I'm telling communities repeatedly. Don't do it. And I have teachers and parents instruct their children that if you hear information on the street or the playground that you don't know to be absolutely true, don't repeat it. Check it out with someone who might know, with a parent or a teacher or a principal or a rabbi or a rabbitson. But, but it's so important that, number one, we understand that we don't always understand what leads a person to the brink. And because we don't know, we don't understand, it's very, very damaging when that's where our mind goes, trying to come up with our theory of what it was about or why it happened. We don't know, we shouldn't say. It's not good for the community to go in that direction. That's the only musr I'm going to give you, by the way. That's something that I feel firmly about. I'm not getting up in a rabbinical capacity to tell you what you shouldn't or shouldn't do, but I'm really talking about the clinical science, the behavioral science, and the aftermath of tragedy. This is a place that the mind goes. Now, some of us go in a little bit of a different direction and we say, well, maybe it's because of something I did. Or maybe I could have had more influence on this person and I could have stopped that. Or if only I would have done this or not done that. So sometimes that is where the mind gets stuck. And if that's where your mind is getting stuck and you're reflecting, you're looking inside and trying to figure out, did I have a role in this by what I neglected to do or what I might have done? So just accept that at times that is a place where the mind does travel. And although this sounds odd, much of the time when we look for our role in someone else's tragedy, that's actually coming from a very sensitive place. It's coming from an empathic place inside of us. It's coming from the part of our heart that so wishes it didn't happen and so much wants to believe that maybe we can stop it from happening. But, but the reality is, as far as I understand, and as far as the family also looks at this, this is not fault, this is not blame. And if that's where your mind is going, write it out in the passage of time. You'll begin to look at it differently too. Something else that happens when there's suicide, when there's horrible loss, we start wondering, fine, Rabbi Dr. Fox said it's not anyone's fault, it's not anyone to blame, 
But, but why did it happen here? Why did it happen in a relatively small community? Why have a number of these types of deaths happened in our relatively small community? Isn't that statistically significant? Okay, so I want to teach you two things, again, just from the science. And the first is that anytime we deal with tragedy, almost all of the questions that begin with the word why have no answer. That's philosophical. Why did this happen? Why did God do this? Why did this family, why did... So generally the questions that begin with why, they don't have answers. They're not satisfying answers. And it's a distraction. Because the reality is, our sages have told us repeatedly throughout the Talmud and throughout the Midrash, that when it comes to other people's agony, when it comes to other people's challenges, when it comes to other people's suffering, it's hard enough for that person to know why he or she is going through this. But it's impossible for you and I to know why they're going through this. So I'm consistently suggesting to people, don't get stuck on the why questions. There are no answers. We don't. But the other part of my question, another part of my response, this has happened more than once. What's going on? So, unfortunately, the bad news is that we are seeing in our ranks throughout the world's Jewish community much death by suicide. It's not only here. You may be entirely focused on your community's tragedy, and it's glaring, and it's very big. And you don't know what happens in other parts of the world, either because it doesn't make the press, or it's quieted, or there are other reasons why it just doesn't circulate. But very, very tragically, um, we in, in our department, at my lifeline, where we are dealing, trying to deal effectively with the tragedies and the traumas across the globe in the Jewish world, um, we are seeing so much, so much self-harm and self-destruction in mid-teens and up through the early 30s. We're just seeing so much of this. And we are beginning to identify problems in the community, which explains some of this. And I'll talk a little bit about that. But, but it's not Atlanta. And it's not just Manchester, England or Los Angeles, California, or Muncie, New York, or the many, many, many cities where we're just seeing more and more of 
lives that come to a tragic close by design. So I just want to give you, if I can, maybe that's encouraging or maybe that's just helping you reframe more accurately. It's not just your community. And what is going on in the world that I know about, that I can share with you, that, that's important to be mindful of? Well, while we don't know specifically with any particular person, what may have led to that moment of abject despair and hopelessness. But we do see that there is increasingly an impersonalization of life. It's societal, and it has also seeped into Jewish society. And what that means for many is that we're too busy. And what that means for many is we spend so much, much time in impersonal communication substitutes for relationships. And whether it's Instagram or whether it's Facebook, or whether it's internet, or whether it's even what looks like the harmless LOL. When in the old days we used to laugh and share mirth together, but we literally sidestep the emotions by typing a couple of letters hoping the other person knows what they stand for, which means we're literally shortchanging ourselves psychologically because when something feels good, we don't stop and feel it. But there's so much of what we're seeing as artificial or substitutes for communication, and people don't connect. And this is something that we want to look at. There is a impersonalization in the Jewish world, like in so much of the rest of the world. We don't talk. We don't emote. We don't share. We've stopped having deep dialogue. We don't read books. We don't even write thank you notes anymore. And I could lecture for an hour or two on how the forgotten art of handwriting with a pen on paper has atrophied our brains because there's a stimulation of important parts of our brain that require the movement of the pen across the paper and the eyes following it. And it's not replicated on a keyboard. So even at the technological level, we're draining our brains and our hearts. And not to mention the World Health Organization's landmark discovery, which we have been saying in behavioral science for 20 years, that the things that we're exposed to on social media and on digital media, whether it's off-limit data on the internet or on the video, or whether it's just the amount of time our brain gets exposed 
to the screen. So this type of activity, technological immersion, it might make us know more facts and information if we can read through a page, but it also has been correlated very clearly, especially in children and in teenagers, with increased attention deficit and increased hyperactivity and increased mood instability and increased problems with impulse control. And that's not just me talking, this is coming out from World Health Commission. If a child is spending more than a half hour a day when he or she is young, glued to a screen. Besides all the things they're failing to learn, they're also failing to develop social skills. They're failing to develop the ability to tolerate frustration. They're not developing any skills in watching what you say because people will type words of vulgarity, of profanity, that in common speech they wouldn't allow themselves to speak because your fingers work quicker than your prefrontal cortex, which tends to filter and operates sort of as a conscience before you say certain things. So I want to recognize, and I, I sort of on a platform here, because this is something that we end up speaking about a lot, but, but there are some remedies for that impersonalization. And it really does have to include rethinking the amount of time that we avoid being in relationships that require sharing and depth and meaning and caring about other people. People sometimes ask me to speak about bullying because that's also part of traumatology. And the, the physical bullying that we see in our schools and in our neighborhoods, we would say that's a haubitzora in Yiddish, meaning that's just part of the problem, but the cyberbullying that takes place without realizing it, that the names you call people and the insults and the slander and the things that you just type, because as I said, the fingers work faster in the prefrontal cortex. You spew out things without first wondering about what impact they're going to have. So even something like that, the fact that we're allowing our kids and sometimes ourselves to vent their aggression in what looks like a harmless way because no one's physically injured. And I'm not even talking about the blood and the war game that we allow our kids to be spending their free time in. How many times have I gone into court to testify about the 12-year-old, for example, who's planned to bring a rifle onto campus because it's all part of the game that he's watching on the computer, and to testify about whether he's dangerous. My first forensic consultation was three boys who went rabbit hunting and their parents gave them rifles with bullets. And one of them, 200 yards from the house, he tripped and the gun went off and hit him in the leg. So one of the friends says, I'll run back and call the ambulance. 
And the other one said, no, I read about this, like when a horse gets shot, you have to put it out of its misery. And so he blew the head off of the other one. Okay. And I remember still the judge who sent him to me for evaluation. I think he was seven. And he said to me, I want you to answer. I'm going to give you three questions. Is he evil? Is he stupid? Or are his parents negligent? That's what the judge wanted to know. Okay. Now I'm not going to tell you what my verdict was after spending hours with the youngster, but that's a product of not learning how to think and not learning how to have forethought, not being sensitive to people. Now, we're not going to address whose fault it was he had live bullets and a real rifle. But, but this, is, this is part of the world that our kids and we are living in. And I'm not going to speak any more about the internet other than to say, give us some careful thought. The amount of time it takes people away from each other and how it has obviated the ability to work on getting to know people and to learn how to communicate and how to form meaningful relationships. And I want to speak about one more thing. And I spoke about the impersonalization. I want to speak about the despiritualization. And your community happens to be doing a fine, fine job. There's a lot of education, there's a lot of learning. There's a lot of outreach. There's a lot of caring. Uh, but some of what at times brings people to feeling alienated and feeling disconnected and feeling that life is not working for them sometimes we can look for ways to address that within our own faith system. I do a lot of forensic consulting for the Catholic Church. Why me? It's not because the Pope and I both wear skullcaps. Um, but, but because the, the, the Archbishop and the Archdiocese, they know that I respect people who have religious beliefs. So when they send me a nun in distress, or they send me a priest in distress, they know I'm not going to say, well, if he gave up all this ridiculous religious stuff, he wouldn't have those compulsions. They're, they trust that because I'm a religious person myself, I can look more caringly and more objectively. Okay? But what I find is that they struggle with the same issue, and that is, how do we take the religious values that we profess and how do we make them more meaningful to our constituents, our congregants? Because our children are learning a lot of Torah and we're learning a lot of Torah and we're listening to Shema, we're listening to sermons. And, and something we have to look at is how many wholesome values are part of our faith system, 
but we need to talk about them and we need to teach them and we need to encourage that type of values-oriented conduct and interpersonal conduct. And we have to set examples. And, and there is a lot of beauty and a lot of richness in our Torah tradition, but we've got to tap into it. And we've got to make it part of our children's education. We've got to make it part of our family life. It's not the remedy or the solution for depression and for suicide. But it is a strong variable for helping people feel hope, helping people look beyond the present struggles and, and really accepting that there can be a better life and that there are good people out there. So this is something that I would urge us all to think about, that this despiritualization, this feeling that for some of us, religion becomes ritual, but we've also got to uncover the relevance and the sensitivity and the values that God wants of us by giving us so many mitzvahs which are interpersonal. He asks the question, when the Torah tells us that we're not allowed to insult people, we're not allowed to curse at people, so it words it in an unpredicted way. It's verses low to kalil cherish. Don't curse at or don't insult the deaf. So Rashi and others ask, that, well, that's a universal. We're not supposed to insult or curse anyone. Why does the Torah highlight the deaf? After all, the deaf person can't hear anyway. If I'm cursing him, he doesn't know I'm cursing him. So why single him out as the paradigm for not being cruel verbally to people? It's not going to hurt him if he can't hear me. And so Pinabachi reigns us in. And he says, well, because the mitzvah is not for the effect it has on him. The mitzvah is for the effect it has on me. And what the Torah is saying, you don't curse anybody, including the person who can't hear you curse, because you don't want to be the person who curses. It doesn't make a difference if you have an audience or nobody knows about it. You don't want to be that person who's hateful and who's mean and who's cruel to others. It is not good for you. Such an eye-opening perspective, the mitzvahs, the interpersonal, yes, they are beneficial to the recipient. But when the Shulchan says, if I have $100 to give to tzedakah, and I can either give it as a one $100 bill, or I can give it as $101 bills, and the Shulchan says, give the $101 bills, because each time you're developing the quality of caring and giving, even though for the recipient, either way, it's $100. But for me, 100 acts of giving, that's conditioning me to be sensitive and caring for others, regardless of the result that that poor man's going to end up with the same $100. So this is 
as I said, there's a despiritualization we can reintegrate the meaning in our religious life and become better people. I'd like to end, and then we have a couple of questions so that we can end on time. Um, but I'd like to end um, with, with a, a last point about taking a dreadful tragedy and acknowledging what it was and looking inward at how we react and taking, as I said, just in review, the self-awareness and looking for self-expression to create, to foster more caring relationships with people we care about and care about us and talking with our children and talking with our students and introducing important values to them and repersonalizing rather than depersonalizing them, less technological dependence and more upfront face-to-face -face relating and more spirit and more quest for meaning and values in our, in our Torah, in our mitzvah practice. But I want to also say something, just in closing. Um, we don't know with any one individual who's ended their life. We don't know, as we said, what caused it. We don't think about blame and fault. We look at the fact. We look at the loneliness component. And then I've been dwelling so much for this last 45 minutes on the importance of building closeness and bringing out sensitivity and compassion. I want to say something about kind words. During COVID, one of the many webinars I gave was looking at antidotes for the loneliness that came from isolation or being closed in and not having much contact with people. So one of the things that the research was showing, which I was promoting quite a lot of, and I still practice it myself, is the importance of expressing gratitude. It looks like a simple thing. But the importance of, whether it's at the end of the day, something you journal for yourself, or whether it's throughout the day, something you practice with people you run into in the store and on the street and any place else, but acknowledge people, and if they're doing something nice, express your gratitude. If they did something that impressed you, stop and tell them. Whether it's a stranger, or whether it's your child, or whether it's your colleague, but there is something the research is showing us about the power of saying nice things to each other. Even if it's a stranger, it changes something in them. It may be small and it may be fleeting, but it changes something in them. So to look at the expression of gratitude and make it part of your routine. And the converse, I published a couple articles on this, I have to say, because I believe in it. 
But we really, as Jews, we want to look at criticism and judgmentalism and sarcasm and insult and cynical perceptions of other Jews. We want to look at all of that as part of what Fasal referred to as having an eye in raw. And when you have cruel things to say about people, besides the fact it makes you into a cruel person, cruel words can drive a person towards the bank. Insults, shaming, humiliation, sarcastic humor, making fun of, whether it's fun of their dress or their appearance, their grooming, their lack of wealth, the neighborhood they live in, the color of their skin, whatever it is. But, but sarcastic, bigoted humor, especially when we direct it at our own, it's an, act of, it's an act of aggression, and the impact it makes on a person, the shaming that we can create, it's strongly correlated with trauma. The correlation between a person who, because of an encounter, felt shamed, felt stripped of their dignity, it's something we have to be militant about. So I'm going to wrap up because Rabbi Fox Banner has signaled me that there are some questions that were submitted. I'm going to try my best to address them. By the way, Fox and Fox Banner, we have not been able to find a common relative. <laughs> okay, thank you very much, Dr. Fox. Um, I am. I feel terrible interrupting your uh, incredible presentation. Um, and, uh, um, you know, as the night gets later, I also have to thank everybody here for coming out, uh, carving out some time late into the evening to hear about some of these very, very important ideas and direction and guidance from an expert. And um, I'm just going to pick some of these questions that came in when we sent out the, uh, the email from various institutions. We included also a link. And uh, many people actually took advantage unusually so, to, uh, to, to click and to submit their questions. So I'm just going to read a couple uh, that we have time for, and Amir uh, Tzah will have other occasions in which we can continue to process this together. So the first question, these are not my words, I'm just reading from a paper, but if they're all good, intelligent, well-reasoned, sensitive questions, so much here to talk about. But the first one that came in is as follows, and I quote, the From community tends to be judgmental and critical of people who don't fit into the box. Not after my speech. <laughs> <laughs> that is considered normal. So you, and, and again, I also have to reflect on the fact that many of the questions that are listed here, you've addressed in one way or another throughout the talk. So if you still have the questions, the recording will be published. You can listen again, and we can continue to talk about it. But that's the question here. How can our community do a better job of supporting them instead of judging them. Yeah. The, the idea of <coughs> factionalism has been around since Jacques Levine had 12 sons, and those 12 sons became 12 tribes, and they were each unique, but they dressed differently, some of them looked differently, some of them pronounced Hebrew differently, 
they all have different flags. And what we know from sociology is that when you have different factions, even if ultimately they're of the same race or of the same creed, that they compete with each other. And we do have episodes, as we know, tragic episodes throughout Tanakh, where that period, that factionalism became horrible, even though we were all originally one nation. So the question is, um, is that something that's avoidable? Whether it's the faction of Orthodox, modern Orthodox, Hasidic, Litvish, Hungarian, Reconstructionist, I'll tell you, I have a trauma team I trained in a Midwestern town. I do this for High Lifeline. Uh, Atlanta might consider this also, having a group of people trained to be there to show support for people in plight or under crisis. We can talk about that later, a different time. Um, but I, I was doing a training uh, in a small Midwestern town where they'd had a tragedy. And in this particular Jewish community center, a number of the employees were not Jewish and they took the training. They became part of my trauma team. And I had three reconstructionist female rabbis and a female chazanit. Chazanit is not the Sephardic chazanish, by the way. It's, chazanit means a woman cantor. Okay. So, so I had these four women on my team and then I also had a reform rabbi on my team. So the rule was, um, that any uh, procedural question they needed to seek supervision from me and any halachic or Jewish question they also had to address it to me also. That was one of the highlight flying criteria for the team. So the first she'ela or shayla, the first shayla that I got from this particular team was um, from the reform rabbi, very respectful and a very fine pastoral counselor. And he said, Dr. Fox, if I go in to do an intervention at an Orthodox institution like a synagogue or a Jewish Orthodox school, out of respect for the Orthodox, should I put on a yarmulke? And I was touched by the question because he doesn't wear a yarmulke, but he felt that if I'm going to be doing crisis intervention for an Orthodox community, out of respect, should I put on the yarmulke? My second shayla was from the three female Reconstructionist rabbis in the Chazanit. And they said, Dr. Fox, if I go in to do an intervention, if we go in to do an intervention in an Orthodox school or synagogue, so out of, the, out of respect for the Orthodox, should we take off our yarmulkes? <laughs> because <laughs> I, I don't know if even Rabbi Feldman, with all his usual admonish, has had that child before. Okay. okay, so why don't I tell you that delightful story? The, 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 there's a way we can get past some of that period. Uh, Rabino Yona tells us in, in Pirkeyavos that when Chazal speak about the Nisim that happened at the Yamsuf, but they don't tell us what they were, but one of them was that when the 12 tribes had to cross through the sea, that they each got their own tunnel. They each got their own tunnel, which kept them separate. But people began to panic because they had friends in Naphtali, or they had friends in Asher, or they had friends in Shevet Shimon. And so the vase was that Hashem made the tunnels transparent so they could all wave to each other and feel connected. They could see that everyone was gonna make it through together 
and no one would be afraid that what happens if I survive with the other 11 tribes drown, okay? So we, we look for ways to stay close and not to be judgmental. Shlomo uh, HaMelech says, that whatever the period is, whatever the breach is between people, that a loving attitude will help you cross over it. So I don't think there's always a judgmental attitude. I think sometimes it's a little unavoidable because we have our differences. And when there are differences sociologically, we start thinking about who's better, us or them. Uh, but we are all us. In the Jewish world, there's not supposed to be a them. We're all us. And it's an important goal to work towards. That's the closest I have to a remedy. I think there was another question. Thank you very much. We'll take the, uh, the next question that came in. <clears throat> and as I look through this list, I also I just want to note, uh, again, that a lot of the questions are very on point and intelligent. You know, there are several questions here, for example, about the effects of loneliness that people can feel. Some, uh, one of the questioners, one of the people who submitted a question talked about his own experience with loneliness. Uh, and it was difficult to read, but also good to read. Uh, to, to get an insight into what that's like. Um, and I just want to note that is something that Dr. Fox did address earlier. So I'm not glossing over questions. There are many questions that have already been addressed, at least in part. The next question on the list, however, I'm going to give the first snippet of it. It's a different topic. Please speak to how gossip and treatment of others based on perception of mental... Uh, uh, based on perception effect of mental health. That's a sentence fragment, but the question is about the effects of, of gossip and its relationship to mental health. So the, the relationship between gossiping and what that does to our mental health? That's what it sounds like. Yeah. yeah. Well, if, again, we're talking about the effects of our gossip on others, I think I did address that about the damage that's done when people hear what you're saying about them. You know, the Mishnah says in Pirkei Avos, al tadinis chavircha So don't be judgmental, don't make a judgment about another person until you've occupied his space and you see what he's going through. If you look at the Purish, the commentary of Rabbeinu Menachem Mibes Meir, known as the Meiri, he says something frightening. He says an interpretation of this Mishnah, which is not what anyone else says. And um, I'm not endorsing this pshat. He doesn't either. He just quotes it from someone else. He said that someone said that the meaning of the Mishnah is don't judge a person until you get to his place. He says, sometimes you meet a person and you're very impressed with him. He's nice, he's warm, he's friendly, he's caring. And you think, what a righteous, wonderful person this is. So someone said the Mishnah means, don't assume that he is what you think he is until you go back to his hometown. Maybe they don't say such nice things about him there. Meaning, maybe he's not what you think he is. A very cynical shot, and the Miri doesn't endorse the interpretation either. Um, but look, when we gossip, when we don't have nice things to say about us, sorry, when we gossip, we don't have nice things to say about other people. 
So it's not saying something good about us either, meaning it's showing that we've got that I and Ra, that we're looking cynically and critically at other people. It's, it's a little unavoidable, like factionalism, because that is how the human brain is wired. We do think critically. We do think analytically. When the Gomorrah asks, why do we say the atachonantanu insertion for Abdullah, when we say it Saturday nights, why do we say it in the bracha of atachonim aramdas? Because all said, why do we insert the Abdullah? So, because the Gomorrah says, that in, in das it's only because we have intellect that we have the ability to see differences that we can think analytically and critically. So that's part of the way that our two hemisphere brain is wired. We, we do look for flaws. We do look for hypocrisies. We do look for inconsistencies. And sometimes we're too quick to find them. Okay, so it's an almost inescapable cerebral circuiting, that, that we do a lot of this pretty reflexively, um, but, but we don't have to talk about it. We don't have to contaminate someone else's perception or attitude by talking about the negatives that we're entertaining in our mind. And, and I think um, that that's part of what Kazal tell us about being shoulder piv, just filter, edit, and censor sometimes what you share with people. You're better off sharing things that inspire them rather than sharing things that make them laugh nervously when they see that we've got a cruel sense of humor. So again, it's not a quick fix, but I think for tonight, it'll have to do. Okay, thank you. Uh, we'll do two more questions. The next one, um, getting back to a very hard topic um, that's been kind of the undercurrent of the evening, the question is as follows. How do you talk to your pre-teen children about suicide? It's hard to approach this topic and would like some guidance. Thank you. Yeah. Okay, so talking to a pre-teen about suicide. Okay, so we start by prompting them to tell us what they've heard. What do they know already? And sometimes just giving them that launching pad to begin talking about what they've heard. They'll talk about what sickened them or what frightened them or what they don't understand. And we'll, we'll learn from their reaction as they tell us what they know or what they've heard, how it's affecting them. Um, when they talk about their reactions, we validate them, which means if they say, I think it's weird, so we validate, yeah, it, it does sound weird. If they say, I think it's sick, and say, yeah, it's really difficult to hear of someone doing that and it makes you feel sick. If they say, it's so sad, we validate that, that yeah, you're, you're a sensitive child, and you feel the sadness, so we just really take their reaction in thought or in emotion where, where they're at, um, and we validate that. Um, we don't gift wrap it, 
if they know that there's been a death, we don't give rapid by making it as if it was something meaningless and it's not important. Um, we don't talk about fire and brimstone and how it's evil and it's bad and they're going to burn it again. We don't talk about that with kids. It's not going to help them through it. Um, we don't go into a lot of unnecessary details and facts. They don't need to know all the details of what happened, even though their minds may be inquisitive. Um, but with pre-adolescents, um, it's hard enough for them to understand what death is. This idea that life can be over and that that's final. Any death is hard for younger children to understand. Um, when it comes to death by design, or self-inflicted death, um, we can just talk with a child that there are times when certain people have a condition where they lose their ability to make decisions and they act suddenly without being aware of the consequences. And so you really couch it that way. You don't make it look necessarily that it was fully intended. You make it look like they didn't realize what they were doing. Um, if the word gets around, for example, a person overdosed, so it's okay to say that, that the doctor said that whatever he was taking the medicine for, he didn't feel well, so he thought he could take more of it. So you can word some of it that way. If it's a more gory type of death, you can say that he was hurting so much at that moment, he wasn't thinking he wanted to stop the pain, and he, didn't, he did it in a way that he wasn't going to be able to recover. So you can sort of give an explanation that doesn't maximize the reality, but doesn't distort it or pretend. So generally the pre-adolescent, if they've heard about it, we, we acknowledge that that's what we understand also. But you do try to couch it um, as a lot of pain, and then you will talk with them. You will talk with them about if anyone you know, or if you should ever be feeling that, that whatever it might be, whether it's physical pain or emotional hurting, so come to me, come to mommy, come to daddy, come, and we'll do everything we can to, to help you through it. This is the last question for the evening. Um, and uh, uh, I, I picked this one for obvious reasons. Um, and the question is, this is, this is directed directly at Rabbi Dr. Fox. The question is, what happens... Where, where are the other ones? I'm sorry? Where are the this other ones? This one says you directly. Oh, okay. So the, this question is, what happens after you leave? Please give details. And this is in parentheses. I understand that we need to check in on people, be a listening ear, etc., etc. But really, what happens next? Okay. Uh, and before that question is answered, in the conclusion of the evening, what happens next is there's going to be Mariv in the main show. You answered it for me. <laughs> when, uh, when Dr. Fox is, is finished, and uh, we'll conclude just after this question. Okay. Good. I'm glad that you asked that question because this is an area that I probably should have. Uh, talked about without being asked. Okay, so I did have a number of meetings today with different people in the community. 
with plans and with ideas, and we troubleshooted and we critiqued. That doesn't mean criticize, we critiqued. We looked at the, the, the good sides and the concerns. Okay, so um, what communities can consider doing after a tragedy, after suicide in their midst. So what they can consider doing um, are having talks on prevention, and there are organizations that specialize in this. It's a talk that I've been part of panel discussions, but, but there are other people, uh, fine organizations who can consult on this along with me, or along with my lifeline, um, but to talk about suicide prevention in a community, in a school, in a shul, so this is something we can do. Um, another thing is it's important to network, to have someone appointed to network with the mental health professionals and the clergy within your community who have an understanding of how to assess and how to assist people who are struggling. Um, and that's something that uh, there are clinicians who don't work in that specialization, but you look for the ones who do, and you vet them and you screen them to make sure that they are a reasonable fit for the Jewish community. Uh, there may also be some people in the area who, who are Orthodox committed, uh, but you do have uh, a group lined up of mental health professionals who will be available uh, when a referral must be made, and rabbis and rabbitsons who also can engage in appropriate pastoral interventions. Um, I spoke in Gateshead, England for a number of days, and one of the things, it's a very small town, but we worked out that the rabbis and rabbitsons um, would not work with suicidal persons from their own kehillah but they would be on call for someone else's congregants, meaning that so there could be a degree of confidentiality, and it's a very small, like it's seven blocks, a whole community. But, but there are, um, there's an importance in networking. Um, another thing I would suggest, and I've been asked about this uh, quite often, uh, Baruch Hashem uh, Nachi Friedman is here, he's taken the training in crisis intervention, he lives here, but he, he's part of my Southeast uh, team based out of uh, Florida. Um, but something you might look into is that, um, and this, I'm not promoting our work, but I am promoting our mission, and that is that uh, we do train first responders to deal with emergent or acute crisis and tragedy in the, in the community, and that can consist of lay people who are motivated to be trained to do first response. Um, rabbis, rabbitsons, educators, professionals also, but um, we are more and more throughout the North America and Europe, we do have, um, we, we do have crisis teams who are given skills to talk people through, not to do, talk them out of doing something, but to address them when they're in crisis. And that's something that you might consider uh, eventually bringing that training uh, to, to Atlanta. Um, we, we are very busy in most of the major cities now, and um, that might be an, an asset 
and an adjunct to the fine work that Rabbanim and the educators are doing already. So I think, again, we look at more courses on prevention. We look at building a network of professionals who can help. You look at a building a team of paraprofessionals who can engage in appropriate delivery of crisis intervention. Um, and uh, something I've been talking about with the rabbis is, I think, more community education for adults on bringing values into the family and into our personal lives is mental hygiene, is prevention. And I think ultimately, and I've discussed this with some of the Mechanchim, to look at ways to bring um, within the Jewish school a faith-based model at different age levels, age-appropriate levels, a faith-based model for helping children understand the importance of wholesome conduct and self-care. So I think these are all inroads and they'll take time, but I do think there are next steps that you can implement by meeting and, and going to the Rabbanim and saying, can we, can we put some of this into motion now? I would give you the bracha that you do that and that you succeed at that. Okay, thank you very much, Dr. Fox, for, your, for coming to our community, for sharing of your wisdom, of your time, of your heart, of your fachmok. And, uh, and we hope to be able to invite you back uh, for happy occasions and uh, to share in happy events. Have a good night, everybody. Thank you so much for coming. Mariv in two minutes in the main show.